This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, welcome to O Ship. On Oship, we've had the honor of interviewing many great business leaders, entrepreneurs, investors, and today is going to be no exception. Today, we're going to actually lean in on pre-seed investing and some tips to being successful raising funds for your pre-seed startup from a leading pre-seed investor, Martin Tobias. Martin is the managing partner at Incisive Ventures, and he's had an amazing journey as both an entrepreneur and an investor. Here's just a quick cross-section of some of his achievements. He was the co-founder of Retree, a company focused on reforestation. He was the founder of Cashless, a local marketplace software. He was the founder of LoudEye, an early streaming infrastructure firm. He was the founder of Element 8, the first angel group to focus exclusively on clean tech and sustainability. And the list goes on as both a business leader and an investor. So let's dig into his journey as an investor and the path to being funded as a pre-seed entrepreneur. And here we go with this week's O-Ship. Martin, welcome to Oship. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I have to tell you that this week is kind of a, even a more personal episode than most. For those of you who follow me on LinkedIn and other social platforms, I've been kind of quietly teasing that I'm coming out with my next company. I haven't announced what it is yet, but I'm, you know, I've just really started this getting serious about raising funds. And I have to be honest, it's been like 13 years since I've gone out and raised capital. And I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable, but there's a difference between being knowledgeable and like living it and working in it. And I'm working the rust off the wheels. And as I was digging into your background even more in preparation for the show and looking at some of the content you've been producing, I was like, man, I want to pick this guy's brain. And I bet a lot of other people who listen and watch at OSHIP would love to hear some of the insights that I've started to hear just a glimmer of from some of the research I've been doing with you. Yeah, I think number one fan for this week's episode is probably going to be me. <laughs> so, oh, thank you. Just how did you make the jump into investing? Well, you know, the interesting thing is I've always been interested in investing. Like when I was in college, I was a double major in business and computer science. Very cool. And the thing that I liked about computer science and business is that I like using computer science to solve business problems. Mm -hmm. While a lot of my computer science friends were doing things like writing device drivers to make keyboards work better and stuff like that, I was writing myself programs in Excel that were analyzing stocks and figuring out what stocks to buy. Huh. And so I've always liked that part of it. And out of college, I went to Anderson Consulting, which you know implements computer systems at businesses. And one of my clients was Microsoft. And I was helping them move from a Nixdorf system, which is an old mid-sized computer to the IBM AS400 at the time. But anyway, and I started working with a lot of startups in the area that were trying to help companies move to new accounting systems. And one of the things I noticed is that the startups seem to be having a lot more fun than the people at the big companies. <laughs> and so I was like, hey, you know, I wonder if I could invest in these companies. And I started investing in a couple of them. And very soon thereafter, I met this guy named Ron Conway. 
who is kind of OG in angel investing. And I joined his fund, Silicon Valley Angels, and started talking to him about how do you invest. And I sort of tried to learn a little bit from him about how do you invest in companies. What a mentor. (laughs) Yeah, as a little bit of a mentor. And, you know, that fund, it was a small fund, $30 million, but he was walking around in the 90s with a shotgun in Silicon Valley. And, you know, he was in the Series A of Google and they issued, that fund issued shares to the LPs in the IPO. And I still own some of those shares. I think my cost basis on Google is like 50 cents. And that's been a real lifetime reminder of the power of investing in some of these companies, tr- potentially transformative companies very early. And I kind of just got addicted to that. Not just, I don't blame you. Not just <laughs> was one of my financial returns, which too. came much later, but for you know being able to work with these companies and follow their journey and you know see what makes a great company. Like for example, with Google, you know, people think it's a fait accompli today, but when they went public, it was not obvious at all. If you remember, Alta Vista was a much bigger company. Yahoo was a much bigger company. There was perceived to be a lot of competition in search at the time. But you know what Ron told me is he said, hey, just do a search on Google and do a search on Yahoo and see what you think about the results. The results on Google were 10 times better than Yahoo. I mean, the product was arguably a better product because of their technology and it's maintained that lead anyway. So that's how I got started was with Ron and, you know, I've gone sort of back and forth. I left Microsoft in 97 and started Loudi Technologies the next day and took that public in March of 2000 and, you know, continued to invest in companies. I've invested in about 200 companies directly as an angel. Recently, in the last two or three years, I've started a venture fund and am investing other people's money, mostly because, you know, I am also an LP in 17 funds. And I like being an LP for the deal flow and the collaboration with other investors. But my LP interests have been returning approximately 2.5x total value of capital returned, which is about average for a venture fund. It's good, but my direct investments have been returning about 6.8x. And the reason I decided to do more direct investing is because I'm making a better return investing directly versus through other venture funds. And other people agreed with that. So they, you know, gave me some money as an LP. And I'm very excited now to take my three times venture funded CEO stuff and all of my operational experience and help a new generation of entrepreneurs potentially, you know, create some truly transformative companies like we did in the 90s and the 2000s. I love that. And a quick anecdote about Google Day. So one of my friends is a chap called Steve Schimmel. He's been on an early episode of Ship as well. And he was the 13th employee of Google. Mm-hmm. And he showed me the original pitch deck that apparently they were raising money on. And it's comedy. Like you yeah. look at it and you'd be like, you're kidding, right? It's almost like a parody deck. It's like old clip art, no real substance to like sure. the business plan. It was just like the internet's going to grow. So we're going to grow, invest in us. <laughs> it was, you know, so it's pretty wild, fun to see. But now when you take all this experience you've got, you're kind of you know, jumping forward you know, quite a few years. How do you evaluate a potential startup idea, especially when there may be limited traction or revenue? Well, at the pre-seed, it's really all about three things. 
And it was the same with Google. The first thing and most important thing by far, and I have a matrix that I weight different things, but the first and most important thing is management. And in my matrix, management is about 65% of the weight. And if you think about it, you know, with Google, it was Larry and Sergey. Okay. You meet those guys and you're like, okay, they're fucking brilliant. So <laughs> that, that's good. The second is what's the market? What's the tailwinds? What's the trend that this company is in? Not necessarily the product, but what are the meta trends that are going to be driving demand for their potential product? Because the product's probably not even really built, right? Mm -hmm. And so you look at those and you say, do I believe in those? And those are about sort of at pre-seed, you know, 20%, 20, 25% mm -hmm. of the weight. And then the third is the product itself and the potential for product market fit. Have they proven to any level at all that their product approach is better than what's in the market? And if you look at Google, the overall trend was the internet connectivity and all that stuff. And you could very probably easily believe that the, well, some people didn't believe the internet was going to be big, but anyway, you had to buy off on that. And then the third was the product. And I just mentioned that when you used Google, it produced demonstrably better results than Yahoo. And mm. they had a different technical approach to how they created their directory. And that approach proved to be superior. But what you're proving in pre-seed is, can we get enough people to use this new approach to make a difference, right? Mm. And so those are the three things. It's mostly the people. It's a people bet. I think one of the mistakes a lot of pre-seed investors make and a lot of angels make is that they get a deck or, and they look at a product and they just focus on the product or the potential market. And frankly, for me, those are less important at that stage than the management because the other thing that happens often in pre-seed is pivots, right? Mm. And you know, one of the great examples of that was, for example, Hotmail. And Hotmail pitched Microsoft and the benefit of Hotmail was all of the data related to the mails, not necessarily the fact that you could do mail in your browser. And that's what turned out to be the benefit in Gmail. Why Google made Gmail free forever is that they were training their search algorithm. It's kind of the pivot sometimes in people's original business idea that ends up making most of the money. And so in order to make that pivot correctly and respond to the market, you need great management. Okay. So that's why I spend more time looking at the management and the management's ability to pivot, to respond to the market, to come up with innovative ways to respond to the market and things like that. Well, so the early stage, you know, it's not like a PE buyout. Those founders, you're pretty much stuck with them. So you fix the product, but you may not be able to fix the founders of the pre-season. You can't really fix the founders that early. I mean, you know, sometimes people will change founders after an IPO. That, that happened with me at Loudeye. I decided to hire a professional manager, you know, after the IPO. But in the pre-seed, you know, for the two or three private rounds before the public, mm -hmm. you're kind of stuck with that founding team yeah. and you better like them and you better hope they're <laughs> good at responding to the market. <laughs> you know, there's the expression in the startup world, they say, you know, kind of fail first and, and fail often. How do you as an investor kind of determine if a founder's past failures or a red flag or badge of honor, if you know what I mean? Well, I ask them directly. Yeah. I say, tell me what you learned from that last thing that happened. The other thing is that I spend a lot of time asking them 
to determine if they were lucky or if they were instrumental in the success of something. For example, you know, you meet today a lot of founders that were like, I was at Google and therefore, you know, you should fund me because I was at Google. And my question is, were you a key important person at Google? Were you driving a key initiative? Tell me about, you know, how you helped Google grow in a material way. Or were you just a junior manager on some team and yeah. you happened to be lucky you were standing around when the success happened? But yeah. the real thing is, was that person, you know, instrumental to the success? And if it was a failure, then what did they learn? And how are they going to do things differently the next time? I've had plenty of failures in my life. And the problem is not the failure. The problem is, did you learn anything? (laughs) And frankly, if you look at the numbers, second and third time founders tend to be more successful than first time founders, uh, mostly because they have learned stuff that makes them better founders the next time around. You're probably not going to make the exact same mistakes, but you're going to be hopefully a little more resilient. Do you like dealing with people that have a little bit of failure under their belt? A little bit of failure is good, even maybe a lot of failure. I'm always surprised that, you know, people like Adam Newman can keep raising money, right? <laughs> After we work, but he's a pretty intelligent, compelling guy. And he obviously made the case to his new investors that he learned something at WeWork and raised you know, a billion dollars from Andreessen Horowitz in his most recent thing. <laughs> so You know, I think failure, if it's a teacher, can be a very good thing. Mm. I almost don't trust someone who's got a little bit of failure under their belt. I can speak of my own personal experience. I feel like I actually learned the most from that. I've had only one startup that kind of went really off the rails for me. But I actually think I learned more from that one than I did the ones where I was the most successful. I feel like it made me a better person. And I think there can be a certain amount of arrogance that comes along with never having a mistake. And I think arrogance can make you not see things that you need to see. And I think that's particularly important today in 20, you mm. know, 2023-ish going forward, because frankly, we are coming off of the greatest bull run in venture capital and startups ever. It's been approximately you know, 11 or 12 years of up and to the right for everything until about six months ago. And, you know, you and I have been through some of the prior corrections. I'm only 23. I don't know what you're talking about, Barton. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) 2008, 2000, you know, we can talk about some of those corrections, but people who've never been through a correction might believe their own BS. We saw a lot of that in crypto. I'm not a crypto investor. I'm a bit of a crypto skeptic, but people have been saying, you know, crypto is going to be big for 10 years and it's an incredibly spiky thing. And it's never delivered on its promise. I don't believe it ever will. But, you know, that is a real risk. I don't like funding founders who have always been in things that turned out to be successful because I'm concerned that they don't know how to operate in a resource-constrained environment. And we're going to certainly find out this year, you know, the people that are good at operating in resource-constrained environments because that's what we're in. You've been through three of these downturns, kind of the internet crash. You got there, you know, 2008, and you got, you know, obviously what we're enduring now. What's the biggest thing that you've learned, I guess, advice you would give an entrepreneur or a founder or even an investor about kind of navigating these? 
The biggest advice is do whatever you have to keep your company running and alive. The CEO has one job. Don't let the company die. It's very simple. <laughs> Don't let the company die. And there's only three tools the CEO has. He can raise money from investors. He can sell something or he can cut expenses. Mm -hmm. Those are the only tools he has <laughs> or she. And right now you're in an environment where it's harder to raise money. Uh, you're also in an environment that it might be, depending on your product, harder to sell something. So a lot of people are left with cutting and a lot of people don't want to cut because they're like, oh, I raised money at this giant price, you know, a year ago, I should be worth more than that because I've made progress, but the market's changed. And the smart CEOs say, you know, I want to keep the company alive and raise money in the market that they are in versus the market they wish they were in. I mean, you have to operate in the market that you're in versus the market that you wish you were in. And the CEOs who put that decision off <clears throat> are the ones that whose companies don't make it. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I've bootstrapped a couple of businesses now, and I actually am a fan of, of doing it if you can. I am too. And, and I think it forces you to get really lean and mean, gets forced you to get really creative. And so you could argue that in the economy that we're going into, the environment we're going into now, you're going to have investor capital if you raise, but maybe people are going to be a little more tight with their money. They're going to think a little bit more of a bootstrap mentality and that might be a great thing for some companies born right now. It will be a great thing. And if you look, you know, historically, there have been amazing companies created in downturns and in upturns. But, you know, eBay was created, PayPal, Amazon. You know, people forget that Amazon almost died in 2000. They did a $1 billion debt deal with the Europeans that got them out of it. But they were months from bankruptcy. And at the time... You know, people were calling Jeff Bezos an idiot for doing this high cost debt deal with the Europeans, but he did what he had to do to keep the company alive. So he made it survive, going back to rule number A. For it, it survived and yeah. it would not have survived without that deal. And it turned out yeah. to be a great freaking deal for those guys. They all made money and he made money and everything was fine, but he did what he had to do to keep the company alive. So let's kind of dig down this path a little bit more. So let's just assume it's a competitive funding landscape because there's still money out there, there but it's going to be harder to get it. And you're going to have just as many yeah. smart people trying to fight for that same amount of money. So I think it's fair to call it a competitive landscape. Yeah. What strategies can entrepreneurs use to stand out and effectively attract the attention of pre-seed investors like you? Well, we're in an interesting time right now. I mean, up until sort of November of last year, there was free money everywhere. It was easy to raise money every six months. And people were, you know, having funding plans where they were only raising 12 months worth of money because they could reliably be able to raise money every six months. The problem now is that the bar has gone up. Plus, you've got this whole cohort of companies that raised money in 2020 and 2021, probably at high valuations that they may not be worth anymore, now mm -hmm. coming back to the market. And those companies with more traction are competing with the pre-seed companies with less traction. Mm -hmm. And it's the same money. So, you know, VCs are faced with, you know, do I invest in a very early company with no traction or do I invest in a company that's a little bit later with traction and at the same valuation? Yeah, so the, right. ch and the challenge is not great for the entrepreneurs, but potentially great for some investors. It's great for investors and yeah. entrepreneurs. 
need to realize that's the market they're in. The pre-seed companies are competing with basically companies that have 12 or 18 months more of traction at the same valuation. So what that means is that you have to stand out that much more in your opportunity, your market size, your team, or something like this, because you will not be competing on traction. So the trick in pre-seed is you have to be willing to accept a more reasonable valuation. For the three years prior to November of last year, I'm a pre-seed investor and my average entry price in a pre-seed company was $10 million over 65 companies. In the last five months, since November of last year, my average entry price in the five deals I've done is $4.5 million. So valuations have come down in the pre-seed, just like they've come down in seed and series A and everything else. And the CEOs who are still wanting the pre-seed valuation of last year are having a very hard time. Hard reality check. It's a harder time. I mean, there are still some that you hear about getting going, but the problem is, you know, and I just saw one last week, a YC company pre-product, pre-revenue, trying to get a $30 million (laughs) pre-valuation. And- you know, they may get it. There may be investors who want to do that because of YC's pedigree, but I can invest in profitable SaaS software companies with three or $4 million of ARR for $30 million. I just don't understand, you know, why I would want to do a pre-revenue company at $30 million. I personally am not doing those. Yeah. I don't blame you. So how do you approach the valuation of a startup at the pre-seed stage? And frankly, if you're just tying into that, what factors should entrepreneurs consider when they're kind of negotiating the terms of that investment? Well, it's a much more of an art than a science. As you pointed out, there's a lot less metrics to go on at the pre-seed stage. The number one thing I recommend that founders look at or do in a pre-seed is, well, three things. One, I recommend that in pre-seed you raise today 18 to 24 months. It used to be in pre-seed that people would raise 12 months of runway because they could raise in six months. You cannot plan on raising in six months. So I recommend that people raise 18 to 24 months of money in pre-seed. Now that ends up being a larger raise than some people might want to do relative to dilution because valuations are down. But I am not participating in any rounds that are less than 18 to 24 months, just because I think you need that amount of time in this market to be able to get enough traction to justify an uplift in valuation on the next round. Because the next round, the seed or the A, is going to be all driven by your traction. The number one mistake a lot of CEOs make and pre-seed investors make is not funding the companies enough in pre-seed, enough to get enough traction to justify an uplift. And Mm. I wrote a blog post about this called Incisive's definition of the stages. And I define pre-seed as after the angel round. So the angel round I define as where ideation, before you've built an MVP, when you still have an idea and you're building your MVP, I recommend companies raise, you know, 250 to $500,000 from angels to complete that. I define pre-seed as you've got your MVP done, you've got sort of five, ten thousand dollars a month of revenue, and what you're doing is trying to drive that revenue up and find new customers to get to about fifty thousand dollars a month of revenue, which is where the seed stage companies are starting to get interested to writing you a seed stage check. Mm. And Series A today is the bar is about a two million dollar ARR run rate. So the problem 
in pre-seed today is you've got to get farther with your pre-seed money before the next round of investors are going to be interested. And if you don't raise enough, if you do these hand-to-mouth fundraisings in pre-seed where you're just raising fifty or hundred thousand dollar type, you know, safes from your friends, you don't have enough money to get where you need to get to get the next round done. So yeah. I recommend that you've got to have a compelling team, you've got to have good tailwinds. And you got to have a reasonable valuation and you've got to raise enough money to get enough done uh, in a complete round. It used to be until November of last year, you could do these hand to mouth fundraisings where you're raising a couple hundred thousand every couple of months or something mm -hmm. like that. And people would give you money that that's too risky today. As an investor, you're not in a round which is fully funded to meet the next KPIs. And the only thing that you're doing in pre-seed the thing a lot of pre-seed investors forget is that you are giving the company enough money to get enough traction to raise the next round. And if they don't have enough money to get the traction, they're not going to raise the next round. And you're almost never creating a profitable company in pre-seed. Oh. And, and that's the number one problem CEOs do as well as investors, which is underfunding a pre-seed round. That's a huge and valuable advice. I'm just definitely taking a mental note on that. What are the other most common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make in kind of the pre-seed funding round, whether it's in terms of raising money or just strategic decisions kind of going wrong? It Relating to the size of their round is one. And then the second would be over-indexing on maybe names versus actual abilities. What does so that mean? Like attaching 50 advisors to it kind of thing? Well, yeah. I mean, 50 advisors. Well, I see a lot of founders with a lot of advisors in their decks. Advisors do nothing. They don't work for the company. They're yeah. worth, in my mind, zero. Even though the, yeah. for some companies, especially deep tech companies, they may be interesting. It's really more about name brands. Like a lot of founders would say in pre-seed, they might want a tier one firm to lead it. And mm -hmm. the reality is, if you look at the pitch book data, 70% of unicorns were funded by a tier one firm in the series A. So mm -hmm. when you're in the A, you know, the brand of your VC probably matters. But in pre-seed, less than 5% of pre-seed companies were funded by a tier one firm. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that in part, that's just because of fund size and stuff like that. These big funds, they cannot write pre-seed checks. They're too small. Uh, but another thing is that you really should be getting money in pre-seed from VCs that have a lot of leverage to provide your company, whether that's customer introductions, follow-on financing introductions. You want high leverage investors. And the reality is these big funds are not that high leverage. Most of them are not that high leverage in terms of what they're actually going to do for your company. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of founders over-indexing on an investor's brand. And I think that's a mistake. You know, my specialty at Incisive Ventures is that I focus on helping investors get that follow-on round done. Before I write a pre-seed check, I know at least three investors who I understand their thesis and I believe would be interested in this company Smart. at the seed round. And I'm so ready to playing chess, thinking about the next steps. I'm thinking about the next steps. Yeah. And a lot of founders end up not thinking about the next steps. They're just like, I need $500,000. It doesn't matter who it's from, or maybe I care that it's from a tier one firm, but they don't think about who it's coming from and what they're going to do for them that could help them achieve the next milestone, which is the next round. And I think that's a missed opportunity. 
because on two levels, you know, they just don't think about the next chess move and you really should. And I've had companies, you know, add me in just because of that. Like I invested in this company in India in the pre-seed at a $3 million pre, and they wanted me to come in because they wanted their series A to be led by a US VC and they had all Indian VCs and the Indian VCs didn't know the US VCs and couldn't make those introductions for the series A. So they actually made room for me and let me come into the pre-seed because they wanted those introductions. Mm -hmm. When they were ready for the A, I made introductions to 20 firms. They Mm -hmm. got 20 meetings. They got a term sheet from a U.S. investor. The CEO was thinking about the next round when he Mm -hmm. was raising the pre-seed. I thought that was very intelligent. That's valuable. I love that. So I I got one more random one, and then I'm dying to ask you your oh ship story. So I heard a great joke recently that kind of hit home with me, and he said, you know, what's the difference between startups and babies? And it was that everyone wants to tell you how ugly your startup is. <laughs> no one will tell you how ugly your baby is. And what I think for those of you who haven't fundraised or listening to ship right now, what this basically means is as you go out there and you pitch your company and you pitch your idea, everyone's got some feedback for you. Everyone's got some advice. And obviously you should be taking that feedback and that advice. But at the same time, there's so many different opinions, so many different perspectives and trying to figure out what you filter through and what you react to, because every investor has different needs and wants. They're going to look at the world through their perspective. I'd be really intrigued to hear your advice, Martin, to anyone watching today. You know, How do entrepreneurs filter through all this feedback and different opinions? Every investor might point them in a slightly different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, Where do you really lean in? Because it seems very overwhelming and confusing. Well, that's actually something that I probe for a lot of times with companies. You know, at the end of the day, the CEO is the guy who has to set the strategy and everything for the company. And you want a CEO who has a direction and a vision and a path that he or she personally believes in and that they're going to stick to. And as an investor, tilt that person off their vision in the first meeting. That's an incredibly negative sign to me. Like, you don't have to agree with me. And hopefully, you as a CEO know way more about running the company than I do. And I want to see a CEO with some backbone. Even if I don't agree necessarily with it, I want to see a CEO who has an opinion and will stick to it. Now, that's a little different from, you know, eventually you want the guy to pivot. You want to also know that they can pivot. I think you I need think both things. between mental flexibility and just saying whatever they want, you know, saying anything to get the money. Anything to get the money, right? Like if I yeah. get the impression somebody's saying that they'll do whatever they want just because they want to get my money, that's a negative sign. But if I get the impression that they're open to opportunities and feedback and, you know, ability to pivot, sort of the classic example of that is I ask a lot of them like what their product development prioritization is. The other way that this shows up is the company says, I want to build a product like this and here's my product roadmap. Then they start selling it to customers and customers start sending tickets and saying, we want to change this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. And in asking a company and CEO how they think about reprioritizing their development milestone based on customer feedback, that's an incredibly indicative thing of how the company manages competing priorities, right? If they allow themselves to be whipsawed around by random shit that customers want, or do they have an opinion on top of the customer stuff, which is 
more of a meta type thing. One of the challenges a lot of pre-seed companies have, and which I've fallen into myself, I was running this company called Imperium Renewables. We signed a $300 million deal with our biggest customer. And then unfortunately what happened is the company's operations ends up getting whipsawed around by the daily machinations of that customer. If you see a company being sort of turned into the internal development arm of their biggest customer, that's an incredibly bad sign. You want a company that can sign the big customer, but continue to build a generally useful product that could be used by lots of customers. It's funny, Elon Musk recently accused that of happening with OpenAI and Microsoft, Mm -hmm. having such a big influence on them. Any opinion on that out of interest? I don't have any opinion on that one, but that is certainly one of the risks. I've seen it kill lots of companies where they pivoted their product development to be just for their one big customer and it made it less useful for everybody else, which creates opportunity for everybody else. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's happening with OpenAI or not. I don't have any particular opinion on that, but that is something I try to watch out for in mm-hmm. pre-seed companies. I want CEOs that are good at getting multiple priorities, internal and external priorities, and then putting together a reasonable plan to operate the company that continues to create the biggest product, the most applicable to many segments product that they can. A moment ago, you mentioned here some of the challenges you've seen when you've also been an entrepreneur or a business leader. It's a perfect segue to ask you, about your kind of OSHIP moment. And for those of you who have never tuned into OSHIP before, or if you tune in every week, you're gonna know exactly where we're going next. On OSHIP, one of the things we love to do is getting incredible leaders like Martin on the show and tell us a moment from your career, could have been yesterday, it could have been 20 years ago, where things kind of went off the rails for you. And how'd you deal with that? And how'd you course correct that? And I think we sometimes we find these stories are inspiring. Sometimes they're just intellectually stimulating on how people rethink about challenges. Sometimes they're none of those things. Maybe they're kind of funny and not funny at the time, but funny, funny years later. I think the main thing we're always trying to do, Martin, is help other entrepreneurs, leaders, investors who are out there or even aspiring ones say, look, you know, the path from point A to B in success is rarely a straight line. And a lot of people joke that those ships a little bit like therapy for them to know that other successful people are out there and struggling with real issues and, and learning from their mistakes. So with that, the floor is yours, sir. <laughs> Well, yeah, I appreciate this question. I mean, my sort of oh shit moment, and it goes back to, did I learn anything? And I'll tell you what I learned. So I started Loud Eye Technology in 97 after I left Microsoft, streaming media service provider. We very quickly raised venture capital. We raised lots of venture capital. We went from zero employees to 400 in three years. We took it public in three years. And that's, you know, 50% faster than your average venture funded company, which is seven years. And we ended up going public in March 17th of 2000, which was still in the dot-com bubble. It was, in fact, the last company to go public in the dot-com bubble because the peak of the NASDAQ was March 21st. And on March 17th, we were able to go public. We were actually like 40 times oversubscribed in our book. The company listed shares at $17 a share. The first trade was at like 47. Crazy successful IPO a $2 billion market cap for a company with $10 million in revenue. That's 200 times revenue, a crazy multiple. 
I knew at the time that was an insane multiple. Now, the positive thing is that we did the IPO. We were able to get the money at that time. The thing that I made a mistake on was believing that we were worth that. 200 times our revenue. Very soon, the bubble burst and these companies came down to reasonable valuations. And the mistake I made is that I thought at the IPO, my job was done. We hired a replacement CEO. And then by the fall, we had given the company to a CEO to run with $140 million of cash in the bank but a cratering stock price. Frankly, a year later, the stock price was down 95%, like everybody in the market. The right thing to have done would have been to go into lockdown with the cash and wait out the crash in the stock price and figure out you know, how to create a business with that cash, mm-hmm. whether it was the current business we were in or something else. That's not what the other CEO did. So what I learned there is I would likely not replace myself in that scenario. And I would have forced a lot more discipline immediately when you knew that the capital environment had changed. And I learned that very personally because, you know, my share of the company at the IPO was worth $500 million and it was worth 95% less 12 months later. (laughs) That's brutal. Not your favorite uh, favorite year, I'm guessing. <laughs> it was not my favorite year, but the good thing about that, it was funny, you know, the Wall Street Journal published my net worth on the day of the IPO. And the other thing that I did good in that scenario, and I know a lot of people didn't, I had a friend whose company went public a couple months earlier, and he had a position worth about $120 million in his company. And the first thing he did is go to his bank and take a $20 million margin loan against his shares and buy a mansion in Miami Beach and a jet ski and basically changed his life. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. His stock went down 95% too. He got a margin call. He lost everything wow. because he changed his life, assuming that this money on his balance sheet was real. Yeah. When I went public, I had a giant number on my balance sheet. I didn't take out a margin loan. I didn't change my life. I didn't buy a new house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even buy a new car. I mean, I wasn't, you know, living in, you know, the same house like Warren Buffett forever, but I didn't <laughs> fundamentally change my life based on this fantasy number on my balance sheet. And that turned out to be very smart because I didn't have any of the leverage problems that a lot of people did. I appreciate that very honest and kind of humble story. Getting kicked in the nuts pretty hard, frankly. That's as good a no-ship story as we could hope to have. So if people want to connect with you, is Twitter the best place? Twitter is the best place, yeah. I'm at Martin G. Tobias. And if you're a founder looking for money, I have a forum there. I'd love to hear what you're building. And if you want to just chat, my DMs are are open. And I'd love to talk to people on Twitter. That's great. I really appreciate that. And for those of you tuning in, whether you're watching live on YouTube or LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or streaming on any of the audio podcasts, I really, really want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in every single week. If you're looking for other formats and how we stream, please go to shipshow.com and you'll see links to all the different platforms that we stream on. The best thing you can do to support the show is tell your friends, tell you, share it on your social feed, give it a like, share a comment or add a comment. So, you know, this is something that we do just because we think it's valuable and it helps other people. We have no aspirations of ever monetizing this show. 
it's meant to be something that's for the community. And the best thing you could do to support that community is help get this content in other people's hands. And hopefully it helps them one day. Tobias, you know, thank you again for your time. I really enjoyed meeting you. You're a clever, really clever guy. You've got a great story. You've been involved in some incredible things. And it means a lot to me that you're willing to come on today and share that with everyone else. Yeah, thank you. I like what you're doing. Keep it up. <laughs> Thanks so much. Everyone, see you next week on O'Ship. Oh, absolutely. Thank you.